Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Saul Weingart. I'm the president of Rhode Island Hospital in Hasbro Children's. So welcome to Rhode Island. Uh, you've been here now a few months. Uh, you yeah. came in, in the midst of a pandemic. It's, yeah. Talk about that. I mean, that was sort of a, a, a strange way to arrive, I guess, is, is one way to put it. I think that's fair. I mean, I came February 1st and, you know, the numbers were high. We were still seeing the post-Christmas uh, boom. And, um, you know, I still, I, I had I had worked clinically up until the end of my tenure at Tufts. And so I was familiar with being in the hospital. I didn't miss a day from March 1st. Um, a year ago when things really uh, started to, to uh, pick up. And so I was familiar with being in the hospital with masks and goggles and uh, trying to make it work. And I spent a lot of time talking to people and I was, I was struck by the, the difference between what it was like early in the pandemic when we didn't really uh, have confidence that we knew how the disease worked. We didn't know if we had enough PPE and what kind of PPE to wear. And um, we didn't know what treatments worked. We didn't know who was at high risk and, and, and where we were by the time I arrived at Rhode Island Hospital where people, people you know, they really, they had it. You know, they, they knew, they were exhausted. They were uh, fatigued mentally and physically, but, but they, there was a sense of mastery that they knew what they were doing. They knew how to take care of these patients and that you know there was a light at the end of the tunnel. The vaccinations were beginning to roll out, and and, uh, and folks were really on that. So it was it was not a bad time to start. Um, the weather was miserable, but the sense of uh, purpose, the sense of commitment, was 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 really palpable. I, I spent a lot of time in the first you know month and a half, two months, walking around, surprising people on units. I mean, often I would wander around not really knowing where I was going, and people were very generous and helpful in, in, uh, in directing me, and I would introduce myself and ask people three things. I'd say, um, uh, what brought you here, what keeps you here, and what makes us great? And I expected that I would get a variety of different kinds of answers, and it, it turned out that people were very, very consistent in what they said. They all said that um, they couldn't remember what brought them there because it was so long ago. We have people with tenure of 30 and 40 years uh, in certain units. And so that was interesting and important to me uh, to learn. And that they said that the reason that they stay and the thing that makes us great is uh, they love the people they work with, they love the patients they take care of, and they think the work is just endlessly interesting and rewarding. So that was, it was very grounding and reassuring uh, to me. So that was sort of a listening tour, I, I guess you could I, describe I think that's it. fair. I think I was trying to take the temperature of the place. I think some people come into an organization and say, all right, tell me what's broken so I can fix it. But I was really doing something that was, it's um, more like a appreciative inquiry where you ask people what's going well and, and, um, and how do we do more of that? So what is your assessment of Rhode Island Hospital currently and obviously yeah. Niles Road Children's Hospital. I've made my career in academic medical centers. I worked at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. I was affiliated with them for almost 20 years. And then Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and then, um, and then Tufts Medical Center. I think the care here is really second to none. I've been extraordinarily impressed 
uh, with the quality of the care that's delivered and the quality of the people who are delivering it. I, I have no qualms about um, getting care here myself, sending family members, referring people to the organization. It's really, really super competent, high-end uh, care. And I've, I've observed directly pediatric teams. I rounded with a pediatric team just a few weeks ago, and, and they took care of um, uh, three kids, two of whom had diseases I'd never uh, heard of or seen before. Uh, extremely rare conditions, one, so one in two million. Um, another one was a, uh, somebody who, a kid who'd had um, uh, post-COVID inflammatory syndrome. And the child was quite ill. Parents were very concerned. Three days later, was doing great and, uh, and was discharged shortly after that. On the adult side, again, very complex patients, a lot of people with a lot of um, social comorbidities, a lot of um, you know, addiction and homelessness and so forth, but also people with a variety of uh, complex neurological, cardiovascular, cancer diagnoses, all of whom get just really exemplary care. So that's been super reassuring uh, and heartening and exciting uh, to see. Uh, there are some programs here that are, you know, world-class um, and, and more of those are being built all the time. The neurology team, the stroke program, uh, the pediatric behavioral health, all extraordinary. Some of the challenges we've had involve, um, you know, dealing with an aged facility. And, and I've seen this in every place that I've worked. I mean, the organization was founded you know, 160 years ago. We have you know, we've got some plumbing issues and we had a flood on one unit and so forth. And so seeing, seeing that, um, you know, addressed in a timely, efficient way uh, was familiar, but also, um, also uh, reassuring. Um, we've been dealing recently with very high census and uh, staffing challenges. A lot of the uh, nursing staff across the country are leaving the profession or are taking some time off after uh, working round the clock during the pandemic. And so trying to maintain our nursing staffing while we're still taking care of a lot of uh, long-stay patients who end up increasing our census has been challenging. We're running, you know, we're running over 100% capacity in some areas. And overall, the hospital today is between 97 and 98% capacity. That's unusual for a hospital. Most hospitals run in the 80s. And so trying to figure out how to you know, keep the wheels on and, and take excellent care while, um, while not overburdening the staff is very challenging. And, and so we've been focusing a lot on efficiency initiatives, trying to make sure that, that patients get all the care they need, uh, and then we get them to another safe disposition. So what else are you doing regarding staffing? I, I've yeah. written about this, and I know yeah. it's, it's a, I don't want to use the word crisis, but it's a, yeah. a, a serious situation, not just yeah. here, but across yeah, the Yeah, 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 totally fair. So, um, so we had used a lot of um, uh, uh, contract labor. These are um, nurses who are hired through agencies and work temporarily. We had scaled that back after we closed the, um, the field hospital at the convention center. And I think within about a month realized that uh, many of those nurses had been deployed to other clinical areas and that we'd gone too fast. And so we're in the process of staffing up. We've, um, we've extended the contracts or increased or added contracts for about 120 additional nurses. Uh, so that's the most immediate thing. And we're in the process of filling that. We're about halfway there now. I think as of yesterday, we'd hired or had uh, commitments for about 
uh, 65 to 70 of the 120 positions. So that's providing some relief. The other thing that we're doing is, um, uh, I think I mentioned that there's a, a, a behavioral health crisis, particularly in pediatrics. Uh, normally we have a couple of kids at a time who require um, a sitter who's observing them to make sure they stay safe because they're depressed or suicidal or, or what have you. And, um, you know, we've been running, you know, 20, 25 kids at a time. At one point we've had as many as half the children in Hasbro uh, with behavioral health challenges. And part of the issue there is there are just a lot of them. And part of the issue there is even though Rhode Island is a state that has enormous capability in pediatric behavioral health, we still have more need than we have availability. So what happens is we pull the nursing assistants off the medical surgical units to serve as sitters, particularly with the pediatric patients. So then the nurses who are left on the adult units don't have as much support as they, as they need to care for the patients to check vital signs and to do a lot of the routine things. So we've gotten a commitment to hire an additional um, uh, about 45 additional uh, people who are sitters. On the pediatric side, we're getting folks who are um, uh, uh, behavioral health specialists so that they can provide some therapeutic um, interventions while they're doing observations. So that's the other major intervention to try to make sure that we support the nurses, but also make sure we have the staff to observe the patients who have behavioral health needs. So what exactly is a sitter? Is that an RN or that's a new term to me? A, uh, a sitter, well, they, in, in, um, at Rhode Island and in Lifespan, they call them constant observation. So it's, a, it's an individual who may or may not have a bachelor's degree uh, they're not typically clinically trained, but they are trained in uh, basic life support and in um, sort of crisis intervention. How do you de-escalate somebody who's getting upset or, or uh, having trouble? These people typically don't lay hands on patients. They observe them. They okay. often monitor multiple patients and, um, uh, you know, uh, call for clinical backup if they need it. So talk about the emergency department. As you well yeah. know, and I've written many many stories about yeah. the opioid crisis, yeah, yeah. which of course is fueled by the, the extreme toxicity of fentanyl. Yeah. Uh, are, you, are you seeing a lot of people arriving in, in the emergency department in crisis or having overdosed? And, and what, are you, what are your plans there beyond what already is in existence? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question and a special, and a special interest of mine. You know, I, I, um, I, I think academic medical centers often um, get so focused on their high-end missions that they forget really what they do day to day. And Rhode Island Hospital, uh, like many academic medical centers, is a high-end tertiary quaternary care referral center that does cutting-edge uh, research and, and um, you know, best-in-class sophisticated interventions. We're also a community hospital, and we're also a safety net institution. And uh, it's important to me that we remember that and, and make appropriate investments in, in, in all those areas. So with respect to the opioid crisis, we've seen a, a relatively stable um, volume of patients coming in with uh, opioid use disorder. We've got uh, an area in our, uh, in our D-pod, which is dedicated uh, for uh, folks who come in with alcohol or, or drug use so that they can be observed safely. And on the inpatient units, uh, we also have the capability of, of um, providing suboxone therapy and um, uh, so forth. Um, so I, I haven't seen any dramatic change in the time I've been here or any uh, uh, surprises. 
We do have an addiction team, and one of my goals this year is to grow that team. Uh, there's an outpatient group uh, that provides a number of ambulatory services, <clears throat> and then there's an inpatient team, which I think is probably understaffed, and I'd, I'd like to grow that group. We met with them maybe a week ago to talk about an emerging uh, trend that we're seeing. What, what we see sometimes with patients who come in with um, infections who have um, opioid use disorder is that um, if they need a prolonged course of antibiotics, there's nowhere to send them. So they end up staying in the hospital for four to six weeks to receive IV therapy. I think what, what's happened is that um, uh, uh, many facilities, nursing homes and, and um, other rehabs are, are reluctant to take them because they think that a patient who's an IV drug user who has an intravenous indwelling line for antibiotics is potentially a risk to themselves that they could um, uh, you know, shoot up or obtain um, uh, drugs and get into trouble. And they think it's a liability risk. So what we found is that there are a number of places around the country, including I think Mass General, I think the Brigham in Boston are both experimenting with models where we're able to get these folks into a safe uh, home environment or supervised setting outside of the hospital where they can get their treatment uh, and have supportive services uh, and not be constrained to being in the hospital. It's not good for us, not good for them. So that's an, an area that we think there's some opportunity. So there has been a mentality among some people here in Rhode Island, and I think it, it continues to an extent. I think it's lessening. But if you have a serious medical or surgical issue, go to Boston. Now, you, mm. your background is Boston. Uh, yep. What would you say to that? I'd say if you have a serious um, uh, medical problem, uh, go to Rhode Island Hospital. Uh, we have uh, we have all the services that 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 you need. I mean, it's it's really uh, remarkable. Um, you know, there no hospital has every single treatment for every single problem, and uh, even a place like uh, Mass General or the Brigham or Tufts or BI, they do share patients with other hospitals that may have, uh, I don't know, uh, proton beam. Uh, device or uh, advanced ECMO or something. And, and so there is a little of that, but, you know, that's a fraction of a fraction of 1%. You know, Rhode Island Hospital really has everything. Uh, so I, I would encourage folks to come here. If I have trouble, I am going to Rhode Island Hospital for my care. I'm very confident in the service that's here. If, you know, if you have a, a new malignancy diagnosis, by all means, get a second opinion in Boston. Um, you know, the Dana-Farber, where I spent some time a large part of their, um, their practice is giving second opinions, which largely reassure people about the excellent, um, excellent services that they're getting elsewhere. And I got to tell you, you know, many of the chairs of our departments and many of our uh, 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 leadership and our clinical people uh, trained in Boston. They trained here in Rhode Island. They trained at Yale. They trained in Boston. They trained in New York. We have uh, nationally trained uh, docs who are super, super qualified. So I, I have no reservation about that. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.